I love taking canoe trips in the summer at provincial parks. The fresh air, getting away from everything, not using my cell phone for a few days. But one year I got a bit lazy when it came to treating my water. I forgot to use my purification drops, and lo and behold, I ended up with Giardia, a nasty intestinal infection. I definitely will not go into the details. It was not fun. But it did remind me of something most of us probably take for granted, which is being able to just turn on our taps and drink clean water. Canada is a global leader in water treatment technology, and we're going to find out how Canadian innovators are changing this industry. This, this, is, this is Industry Interrupted. Industry Interrupted. Thank you to Fidelity Investments, the sponsor of this episode. We live in a time of accelerating innovation. New technology is transforming our world and the investment landscape. Ask your financial advisor about Fidelity Investments or visit fidelityinnovators.ca. We use an insane amount of water in this country. According to StatsCan, Canadians use 447 liters of drinkable water every day. That stat covers all uses of water, including industrial and commercial, but more than half of those 447 liters is used at home. From showering to laundry to flushing toilets, we're one of the largest per capita users in the world. But how often do we think about where our water comes from and what happens to it before it comes out of our taps? That is the focus of a billion-dollar industry in this country. David Henderson knows it well. He's with XPV Water Partners, a firm that invests in companies that develop leading-edge water technologies. Hi, Sean. So let's start by talking about what makes Canada a global leader in water technology. It actually goes back in Canada's history. When the Clean Water Acts were introduced, I think in the late, early 80s, late 80s, it caused a real change across the country. If you think of where Canada's GDP comes from, it actually comes from very heavy users, industries that use a lot of water. And it was actually the drive between the Clean Water Acts and those industries that drove a lot of innovation into the marketplace. And that's one of the reasons why Canada is one of the leaders. Okay, so you've been following Canada's water industry for 10 years. What's the biggest change that you've noticed over that time? There's two changes that are happening right now that I think are really important, and it's not just going to be isolated to Canada, and that is how do we continue to upgrade, maintain the infrastructure that we have? You know, we've become very advantaged here in Canada and in most Western countries where we have this great infrastructure that delivers water to the tap, like you said, but there's literally billions of dollars spent a year to maintain, upgrade, build out that infrastructure. And a lot of that infrastructure was put in the ground 30, 40, 50 years ago. I don't think we have the money to replace it all, so we got to get smart in how we upgrade it, maintain it, and take advantage of what's there. The second one is you know, something we call digital water, and that is the advent of digital technologies, everything from cloud to computing to AI, machine learning, all these kind of things making its way into the water sector. Because the water sector up to now has been a big guesswork industry. So we kind of guess at what's happening with weather and all these different things. With all these technologies now, you can take the guesswork out. And I think when you combine those two, you get some very interesting uh, outcomes. One of them being hopefully, and, and we're certainly seeing this with many of our companies, is much more efficient infrastructure, which is much lower cost and much more effective. But how do you get a giant body like, say, the municipality of Toronto to adopt this technology when there's so much bureaucracy to go through, let alone the actual implementation? Yeah, well, I think um, 
certainly selling to cities uh, has its challenges. Um, but again, a lot of this is being driven by uh, by needs of the city. So, for example, Toronto's a great example. We had a couple of big storm events this past summer. So we have these unusual storm events now that are happening on a very frequent basis where a lot of water falls at once. And again, when we designed these systems 50 years ago, nobody thought about that level of water dropping at uh, all at once. And so, so you take the city of Toronto. So one of the things they've been doing, as an example, is they've been putting in sensor networks and using sensor networks and data to be able to manage that water flow in their sewer systems, which then prevents sewers from overflowing and spilling, which has been a big problem for the city. Well, if they have the sensors and networks in place, they get the data and warnings, so they're able to manage that problem. That's an example of what the city's doing already today to uh, implement these kind of technologies. Okay, so tell me about some of the most impressive and innovative companies you've come across in Canada. What are they doing that's right on the cutting edge? One would be Aquatic Informatics. So this is a company based out of Vancouver. And what they have is they have software that actually measures raindrop to water tap, if you want to think of it that way. Some of the cool things uh, or infrastructure they've been involved in would be the smart tunnel, as an example, in Kuala Lumpur. So believe it or not, in Kuala Lumpur, they have this tunnel that in normal times is a highway in and out of the city. And then during their typhoons or where they have these big flooding events, it becomes a storm tunnel. And again, it's aquatic software that pings all the sensors that tells the tunnel to turn into a stormwater and turn back to a highway. That, to me, is the future of smart infrastructure. So that's a pretty cool company. So they have clients all over the world uh, based out of Vancouver. So what do you do about places with aging infrastructure? And I'm thinking about Flint, Michigan right now, just because that's probably the most well-known issue in North America around water and water management. A lot of that just had to do with the infrastructure that was in place in addition to the supply that was being diverted. Are there ways to correct those problems after they occur? Or is it an issue where you've got to replace that infrastructure at the front end in order to prevent it? Yeah, I think... um you know, one of the main challenges in Flint, Michigan, is the, the lead pipe issue. So, unfortunately, that's, uh, I think, uh, a set of circumstances of unintended consequences because when they obviously put these lead pipes in the ground, I don't think anyone anticipated this issue. So there is things you can do in terms of treating the water to, to actually neutralize that issue. I do think the better management of the water testing and the water quality data I think that will be an important step forward for uh, cities and transparency, because if those things have been in place, um, then it's very hard for the city to mismanage that program. Um, So I think it's going to be more solutions like that than necessarily, hey, we're going to rip out all this infrastructure, because quite frankly, the funding needed for that is probably not available. So earlier this year, a UN report warned more than 5 billion people could suffer water shortages by 2050 due to climate change. How are Canadian water companies preparing for the challenges posed by climate change? Water will be one of the first frontiers where we experience climate change as humans. So climate change is going to impact quantity. And so I think we have to get better at managing that quantity. Interestingly enough, one of the big trends in industry in Canada and then throughout the world is water recycling. And I think that's ultimately going to be the winning technology. If you can use that same drop of water on the same spot over and over again, economically, it beats everything. So a lot of countries are concerned about being able to supply clean water to their citizens moving forward because of climate change. Do you think Canadians have any reason to be concerned and maybe there are regional differences? 
Um, certainly, we certainly we should be concerned, uh, and definitely there will be regional differences. But we're already starting to see like uh, we have water scarcity issues in Western Canada. We're going to be faced with the same you know rising coastlines both on both sides of the country. Um, there's obviously been issues around the Great Lakes. So uh, I don't think we're going to be isolated from uh, climate change at all. If anything, we may be impacted more than others because of the abundance of water and, and, and the size of our country. And so what do you think about things like desalination? Is that a realistic proposal for a country that's surrounded by water? It's not a silver bullet solution for the water challenges of the world. It's an important part of an overall solution. But one of the big challenges you have with desalination is once you move probably 50 or 100 miles from the ocean, you lose a lot of the economic value because water is very heavy. It's very costly to ship or or transport. Um, So I think coastal cities, it'll make sense for sure. But I'm not too sure, you know, you think of where our big industry is. It's not necessarily sitting on either side of the coast, right? Most of our agriculture is in the inner parts of Canada. So... I don't think that will be a, you know, an anchor technology for Canada. I think it will be more things like recycling. I think the, the data management side of water, um, you know, areas where Canada is already very strong. So what are the biggest challenges facing our access to clean water here at home and let's say in the next 10 to 20 years? Um, I, I think it comes back to my earlier answer to, you know, how do we maintain the level of infrastructure that we have? Canada is very strong in the Internet of Things, the data side of things. Water is a very data-intensive industry, but we haven't used it all that well. And I think what's happening with the advancement of everything from communications technology to the data technology, um, the combination of things, I think, is going to make a big difference because it's going to allow us to run the infrastructure very efficiently. Would you say that wasting water is a huge issue for us? Are we maybe too blasé about our water supply? Can you imagine, let's say, a Walmart, you know, loads up its trucks at its distribution center and it gets to the store and it's missing 25% of its product? That's probably not a, an efficient system. So I think any wasting of water, in particular treated potable water, because we literally spend billions of dollars to get it to a high quality and then just have it leak out of the system, that's a bad idea. And we also may need to rethink our water system, right? If you think about it, today it's a very centralized system. So we take... Think about it as like, you know, computers in the 1980s, right? You know, we had big central mainframe computers and there's only going to be three of them. Well, today, most computers are in our pockets, right? Water is going to move the same way. Today, it's mainly centralized. So think about it. We take all of the water to a central location. Remember, water's heavy. You got to pump it and all that kind of stuff. Treat it to a very high standard. That high standard of potable water is actually only needed for about 2% of the use of that water. The other 98% does not have to be to that standard. But that's the way we've designed our rules and systems. So there's massive you know, opportunity there because just like the computer moved to your pocket, well, you can move the treatment to its source, right? So I'm a big believer in point-of-use treatment. So in other words, we will have technologies, I think, in the near future where in your house you may have certain point-of-use filters and filtration technology for your kitchen sink and your maybe your dishwasher and that kind of things. But washing your car or water in your garden, well, you don't need potable water. for that. Actually, potable water is actually bad for water in your garden. So think of that on a household level. Now take that to an industrial level. Like most industry needs different quality of water. Car manufacturing, you don't need high pure water, right? So it's just a different water use. So I think that will be an interesting big development in the future where we decentralize the actual uh, treatment itself. 
David Henderson is with XPV Water Partners, a Toronto firm that invests in water treatment technology companies. Which is interesting because one of the things that surprised me in the interview was the fact that so much technology can be put to use in an industry like water. For most Canadians, water is not top of mind. But now we've got sensors and data and other kind of high-tech elements moving their way into the sector. In a minute, we'll hear from a research scientist in northern British Columbia who helps rural and indigenous communities access drinkable water. Ted Phillips lives in one of those communities. He grew up drinking untreated water. But that changed thanks to an initiative at UBC. That was kind of exciting, like seeing water come out of a tap. We have grandchildren and stuff, and it's nice to know that they're drinking good water. But first, a message from our sponsor. This podcast was made possible through the support of Fidelity Investments. For decades, they've been giving their clients a world of innovation by investing in companies that invent the future. Ask your financial advisor about Fidelity Investments or visit fidelityinnovators.ca. As we just heard, there's a lot of impressive water treatment technology here in Canada. But it begs the question, if we're so great at finding ways to treat water, why are there so many First Nations communities that don't have access to drinkable water? A program at UBC has found that sometimes it takes more than money or technology to fix a problem. It's called Rizzo WaterNet. Candace Cook is a research scientist with Rizzo. We reached Candace in a remote community in northern BC. I started off by asking her why she thinks it's taken so long to find a sustainable solution for Indigenous communities. For me, what I've found, just having been in the field so much working on these projects, is that it's less about funding or the technology that's available and more about finding solutions that are going to be unique and suitable to a individual community. Especially when you have remote communities, their circumstances can be so varied and really a one-size-fits-all solution just isn't appropriate here. And I think that really has a lot to do with why this has taken so long, like literal decades. There's been so much innovation in water treatment technology in this country. How is that helping? The new technologies that are coming out right now are helping things, and it's really exciting to see some of the new stuff that's coming out of uh, Canadian research and trying to apply it in the field. Some of it is absolutely marvelous for remote communities, but really what we're finding is that that's not enough. Uh, What was really missing uh, is that consultation, especially when it comes to First Nation communities, Uh, really working one-on-one with community members and community leadership to really understand the community's relationship to water, the capacity that they have, and really what they want. For some communities, for instance, there's a strong cultural connection to using a surface water, you know, the springs that they've used for hundreds if not thousands of years. Um, But as you know, like there's a lot of factors, external factors, that may prevent that from being kind of a sustainable solution for them anymore. Basically, you create a bespoke water treatment plan for each community, depending on what you find out about them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like a customized solution that really the community itself has helped design. How does the process begin? We take a lot of baby steps in the beginning where we really just get to know the community and the leadership and really develop a narrative about the challenges that they're facing, 
and I don't go in with any preconceived notions. It's just more a learning opportunity. You worked with the Lytton First Nation in the Fraser Canyon in BC. How did Rizzo fix the situation there? So that community, it's about three hours away from Vancouver. The challenge really is that the the First Nation has many different communities within their traditional territory, and they're all spread out over, uh, gosh, hundreds of acres. And this particular community, um, it's separated from the main area by a river. You can only access it on a ferry. You know, they'd had engineers come in before and take a look at their situation and propose some things, but everything was kind of almost too large of a scale. And with that, the price just goes up exponentially. So really what we did when we worked with them is try to come up with a solution, a, a way of getting a water treatment system in place in a more effective and efficient way. So with what we did there, it, it was a proposal to prefabricate a water treatment plant in Vancouver in kind of a small sea can storage container sort of uh, thing, if that gives you a better visual, and then ship it out to the community as opposed to building something larger and in place. Um, certainly that, as you can imagine, that can really cut down on costs. Um, though that did present some challenges trying to get this unit to the community, especially on a ferry that didn't quite have the capacity to take a load that large. But um, the team managed to, to get through all of this, get it in place, and really just kind of pipe it in. And that's been working wonders for this community and since day one. Your work isn't limited to First Nations communities. Rizzo also helps people who live in other remote places in Canada. What kind of water issues do you see in other parts of the country? The issues that we're seeing across Canada really have to do with Canada itself and the way it's set up. We're such a vast country and there's so many communities that you would categorize as remote. And when you have these smaller communities, even if they're close to urban centers, you're always going to have logistic issues and capacity issues within the community, whether that means you don't have... um, operators there at the time or it's just a little bit too remote to tie into an existing distribution network and this brings up a lot of challenges from an engineering perspective Um, you can design with the technology that's available something that a hundred percent can treat that water but when you have to say add chemicals to the water for the treatment or even something like chlorine which is such a basic water treatment technology that can be challenging when you know even shipping chemicals up to a water treatment plant might might be an absolute challenge or a complete no-go in the winter months the best way i find to solve something like that is to work with our partners and work with the community to find flexibilities and come up with something that's going to work for everyone. And that's why it's so key to involve residents and operators and community leadership right from the get-go, because they'll be able to step in and tell an engineer who's maybe working in Vancouver, working in Toronto, this isn't going to work because of we have ice roads for half the year, something like that. Describe for me what it's like to see someone who hasn't had access to clean water in decades suddenly be able to turn on their tap and drink the water. I think being able to trust the water flowing from your taps is something most of us take entirely for granted. And it's almost surreal to think of what it would mean to have never had that. So watching a community or a community member turn on their taps and 
and and seeing someone take a sip of that water and to actually trust it, it's it's quite an emotional moment for myself. And I think anyone who works on these projects, you're kind of caught off guard. It's really almost overwhelming for me to be there. And I think it's just such a beautiful moment. Candace Cook is from Rizzo Waternet, a program based at UBC. Thank you to Fidelity Investments, the sponsor of this episode, and a special thanks to the Global Reporting Center at UBC. On the next episode of Industry Interrupted, The words new approach and insurance company are rarely uttered in the same sentence. They will be next week when we talk to serial entrepreneur Mike Serbinus. Industry Interrupted is produced by Laura Regeer, Anne Lang, Guy Dixon, and Stephanie Chan. You can get in touch with us at podcasts at globeandmail.com. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sean Stanley.